welcome to first of 2016 episode of Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working professional photographers. I am Tyler Stallman. I am Cameron Whitman. And we've got a guest back that you may have heard before, Chris Dowsett. Hey, good to see you too. Actually, we're not seeing each other. I think this is the first time I've been involved with this podcast where I am not looking at anyone. Three people remotely. I'm trying out a new thing that I guess photographers won't care much about, but podcasters (laughs) might be interested in this service called TriCast. And it uh, records all of our audio locally, uploads it, and then gives me all the local tracks at the end. So I guess you'll be uh, hearing... At this moment, how much succeeded. Yeah, yeah. And if TriCast, if the service does its job, then from the listener's perspective, you should have no idea that anything's different at all. (laughs) So I should cut all this out. Yeah. (laughs) The the thing is, there's another brand that is called TriCast, T-R-I. And to find this, you go to T-R-Y-C-A dot S-T. So very confusing. Anyway, that's not what we talk about here. (laughs) We talk about photos. Uh, It's a new year. We've got new things. The big topic for today we want to cover is how to break through a photographer's block, how to keep making great things when you don't feel like it. But uh, first, we'll just do a little bit of news and follow up. First one uh, is definitely directed to you, Cameron, and that is an email we got from Douglas about the film toaster. He's saying, please, please, please do a more in-depth review of that film toaster thing. And I was hoping you could, well, instead of doing a whole episode review of it, Mm -hmm. give us a breakdown of what it takes to make the film toaster useful for people. Uh, Now that you've spent enough time with it to be productive, Mm -hmm. you know, is there a path to being productive that most people can take to get there right away? Um, Yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's such a thing as get there right away. What needs to happen from the gentleman that's, that's selling the film toaster is he needs to come up with a guideline to get people started based on the type of work that they're going to be doing. So what I mean by that is that uh, each different format kind of requires a different lens. You're not going to get a full coverage. You mean different film format, so 35 or that's right, uh, 135. That's right. So right now I'm Wait, using 120. I mean, right. Right now I'm using the 55 uh, f2.8 macro. It's an old Nikon AIS macro lens, um, and I'm using that for all the medium format and large format. And I'm using my 105 uh, macro for the uh, 35 millimeter, and uh, it, it really does make a difference because you want to get as much uh, coverage as you can get. So you have an, enough pixels to play with. So if somebody's only usually shooting one format, they can probably get away with the one appropriate lens. Yes, absolutely. But if you plan on doing multiples, then you're probably going to need multiple lenses. Well, you're going to either need multiple lenses or you might need some accessories. Um, oh, wait. Can I fill in some blanks for any first-time listeners? The film toaster is a big box that holds your camera and film and lets you do quick scans of film using, uh, well, your camera. So you get mm-hmm. digital files um, pretty quickly yet very high quality it provides an atmosphere which makes it ideal for you to capture what's on the film in the mm-hmm. digital camera um and so it's 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 super useful and it can be very quick but it's still not it's it's a lot faster than using uh, any of the the home-based scanning solutions um, but it still requires a little bit of skill and practice in terms of getting mm-hmm. execution it is a little complicated Hey, thanks, Tyler, for filling in those blanks for all those people that didn't know what you guys were talking about. Uh, Did you know? Including me. <laughs> uh, I silently, as as softly as I could type into the Google search, <laughs> film toaster, enter. Uh, I, I'm looking at it, and it uh, looks awesome. It looks 
uh, like an amazing kind of thing, but probably pretty finicky, a little bit slow going. Quite um, expensive, at, quite the, expensive at the moment. It I'm is very expensive. Wondering, does this have a uh, a film uh, like a video, like a filmmaking counterpart? Uh, specifically, I have a bunch of old Super Eight and eight millimeter that I want to start digitizing, and I'm essentially going to do a very similar process of just taking a, a like an old projector, projecting it on a wall, and then filming it with a DSLR or what, probably not a DSLR because of the the short record oh. times. Mm-hmm. But I'm probably going to use like a hundred mil macro because essentially when you project like with a with a projector, um, the image degrades the the further away from whatever you're projecting on, uh, mm-hmm. the further away you get, and it gets sharper and brighter the closer you move the projector up to a wall or or right. a screen. Right. So I'm going to try and put the the camera mounted almost directly above where the 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 film or the projector lens is, and then have them both one project and one record. Mm-hmm. And I can't really think of another better way to do it, but yeah, I don't think that this would be able to to do that because there would be no way to to automate to have an automated have feed. feed. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz so. like I'm not looking in this particular case at the absolute best quality. The film toaster definitely looks like a like a professional solution, like it would mm-hmm. be the best you know, the best uh Best of everything, really. It would be lit correctly. It would be uh, you'd get no f- light flares. You get really clean kind of digital captures of the film. And yeah, it's right. easier to control dust and stuff like that as well. Yeah. So. so it's really like if you were to take a volume of film or shoot film, I suppose, and digitize it, and you're doing it professionally, this makes a lot of sense because it's the highest quality. I imagine anyway. Yeah, it is. It absolutely. Is. So far, the issue that we've gone over in previous episodes is uh, color. That's mm-hmm. the really big obstacle. And do you have a Quick solution to that yet? Yeah, I figured it out. So the the thing about it is that it's quite easy to do transparency or slide film. And then I also learned that it wasn't terribly difficult to do black and white. Um, it, you just invert it. So it's not that big right. of a deal. The problem is when you're dealing with color negative film and you've got that orange base that you've got to get rid of at the same time as, as having to correct the color. So it's this weird process where you have to uh, remove something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It turns out that Color Perfect does work quite well, but there's a trick. So when you're capturing the shot, uh, what are, the way I'm doing it right now is I'm, I'm shooting Tether directly into Lightroom, which makes everything pretty fast and simple. And then when I take the shot, I leave just a, a slight sliver of, of the film base in between each frame. And what that allows me to do is use the, uh, the white balance dropper and I click on that area, and it, and, it, and it color corrects the negative. And then when I import it into Photoshop, then I put it into Color Perfect. And then when it does the conversion, it's almost perfect. Huh. Yeah, and so that makes it a lot easier than it was previous to that, because I was trying to figure out how to, to, to master Color Perfect, which I think that um, no matter who you are, you're going to need about a month to really master mm-hmm. Color Perfect because it's it's some pretty janky software. It's pretty old. It does work really well, but getting to understand it is not very intuitive because it doesn't work like any of the modern tools that we're used to working or using. So that part of it is a little bit weird. But after that, once you've got that image converted, then I'm just I'm bouncing it back to Lightroom and, and using the tools that I enjoy using there. Um, and then if I need to do any any kind of extra stuff, then I take it into Photoshop and finish it up. Hmm. So right now, I'm, it's taking me about 30 minutes to digitize a, a roll of 35 millimeter. And then uh, depending on how much work 
from there, it could take anywhere from another hour to several hours, depending on how deeply I want to go into it, you know. Um, this sounds horrible. <laughs> I mean, I, I've really, I've gotten more and more tired of the really challenging parts of film. And for me, I, I've really liked to send stuff in. So I think it's funny that it's basically since this show started that we had this division of where like you started going one way with film and I started going another. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Where you've put in the time and put in the work and you've like really been figuring out how to make it work at home. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of decided that it um, wasn't worth the time well, <laughs> and, and let somebody else do it for me. And I agreed to a lot of that, you know, like when I was uh, scanning with the Nikon CoolScan 8000, you know, it was taking me almost an hour per file, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. And those were, yeah. didn't matter if it was 35 millimeter <sighs> or medium format. And at that time you were like, wow, that sounds really awful. Yeah. Well, I mean, this sounds much better. Well, yeah, Definitely. this is this is much better. I'm saving yeah. an infinite amount of time, yeah. and, and also the results are way better. Yeah. Put in some learning time at the beginning instead of all the time on waiting for super slow scans. Hey, can I ask uh, just a really basic question? Just try and summarize, like with a blank slate to the topic, what are the pros of shooting film? <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> and I mean that because honestly, I think that in the in the way that um, I was just having a conversation with a friend about being overwhelmed, uh, feeling like a digital hoarder with like everyone says, "Oh, shoot so many photos because you can get better shooting a lot of digital photos because you can," and then you amass these volumes and mo- volumes of photos where I almost crave that every one of my subfolders had like seventy two photos in it. Like I had three rolls that day. That's yep. personally my favorite thing is coming back from a holiday. And so the, the main times I've shot films in the last little while is we go on trips, bring a digital camera, and I'm shooting all the stuff for Ronnie's blog there, shooting a lot of volume on that. And then just ex- moments that look really pretty on film. And when I get back, I'm way more excited to see those 36 photos uh, that were, you know, they represent the whole trip and the most interesting moments I saw. Everything just feels more exhausting looking at the deeper folder of every thousands of photos. Yes. Um, So that's one of my favorite things. So when you put it into terms like that, Chris, like I think that it's, it's pretty obvious what the benefits of shooting film might be. But if you're just looking at it from a technical perspective, there are no benefits to shooting film, in my opinion. I think that like, uh, as far as an aesthetic most of the time, I'm more excited by a film image, but you know there are definitely no technical. It's not better. Well, you can't you can't honestly say that film looks better. Yeah, yeah I'm not entirely sure. One of the only episodes I've come come on uh, and talked to you guys was about the like presets, VSCO and Maston Labs and film mm-hmm. emulation presets, and yeah, it's getting there. You know, like I know it goes even deeper into emulation of the organic nature of a, a film when you go into filmmaking. So if you shoot digitally and you want to do like a, a conversion, uh, so the audience has no idea it's to, perceptively to them. It's, they could imagine that it was shot on film with like an organic noise pattern and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different things that are really getting there. Like where it's, you have the latitude, you have the resolution, you have the organic kind of almost living uh, shadow areas and midtone areas where they have a life, like a, a very unique noise pattern that's only achievable in the random nature of film. Up until mm-hmm. now, there's like some some processes that are getting pretty close. But I, I remember being the kind of dickhead that I was in photo school 
<laughs> I remember being really pro-digital, almost in like a George Lucas, you know, Star Wars pre- prequels kind of sense of like <laughs> digital is everything, you know, like forget the, the past, you know, move forward, people. Right, right. Yeah. And um, there was one girl there that that shot film. And I remember saying, if the end result is the same and film takes longer, then I can honestly say that film is a waste of time. Yes. And she really hated that <laughs> because oh, of course. I, I was saying essentially the thing you like doing is a waste. But now that I think of a lot of the time where I spend a, the most amount of my time is getting overwhelmed by things like volume. So I'll shoot way more than I should have. I'll be way less focused in the, the actual act of photography thinking, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'll take 10 instead of one. So I'm not only taking more time taking more photos, but then I have this responsibility of dealing with large volumes, curating pics, uh, archiving, whatever, right? There's all this time where you just think that digital has to be the thing that just because each single task is faster, that the total amount of time must be saved. But you think, actually, you shoot 24, you know, like you just said, it takes you like roughly an hour to convert, what, 24 or 36 or whatever. I can't remember what you said. 36, yeah. Yeah, 36. And that might actually, in the grand scheme, if you were to clock the total time that you spend with getting, you know, 20 good images or 15 good images out of those 36, it, it might be comparable. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking no, just because the single thing is faster that, that, that I spend less time, but I'm wasting a lot of time dealing with, you know, digital as a, so as, an as, as somebody who does both, you're actually onto something that is, that is quite the, much the truth, but it's, it's one of those things that it just depends on who you are. Right. I think that most people shoot too much when they're shooting digital. Mm-hmm. And I think that in terms of becoming a good photographer, um, it's, it's probably not, it's not a bad thing for sure. Like I think that being, I think photographers today are able to, to progress much quicker than they ever were in the past because of that ability to just keep shooting. Um, you know, and I can say that, uh, from the position I have at Stoxia, I see that all the time. I see photographers who are, are a lot better than I am, who I ask them, how long have you been shooting? And they're like, oh, you know, like three years, two years. And it blows my mind because I just don't understand how that's possible. Yeah, they pick um, up that quickly. Yeah, and I think that digital has a lot of um, to do with that 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 capability. You know, um, uh, the, I would say that just in actual time consumption, uh, that film is much quicker. I, I, I never really do it for jobs, but for creatives, I've you know, brought it in. And the thing is you may spend a little bit longer shooting, but it's not that much longer. You don't spend as much longer taking the photos mm-hmm. as you would sorting through the thousands. The The time in post can just add up to being so much worse. It can, it can equal out. And that's yeah. exactly my experience. My experience is the same as what you guys have just mentioned. I'd say that's worse than equaling out. You know, if I've really overshot on digital a day, it can they can take up a full day of editing, whereas yes, the slowness in um, in film is, you know, maybe it's an extra half hour. It's not hours and hours more, right? So I've got an idea for a product pitch <laughs> that somebody Shoot. that's listening should should probably um, think up. And you and I have talked about this idea in, on, to some degree in the past, but to, to create, if like maybe Fuji and Kodak were creating... Uh, memory cards that actually had the film profiles built into it, and then what if uh, what if they were limited? What if you you know you bought the card that only had so many shots on it? 
Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't think the limited number would sell, but the pre, the pre edited thing that was, uh, the, that episode about my dream camera, it was, uh, except I was saying to build it into the whole camera, but yeah, I mean, totally build it into a memory card. Um, the Porsche 400 card would be awesome. I'd love that, that. Yeah, that would be amazing. I'm kind of, I'm still surprised that given the fact that, um, we're working with digital cameras that are essentially running off a backbone of software. You'd think that it would be doable to just push that ability into the software, which is like, you know, for, for all the presets and all the things that have come out as norms, like the portrait 400, Mm -hmm. you know, standard, you'd think that would be uh, like almost, okay. You, you wouldn't think that that would not only exist. You'd think by now being 2016, that would be the way it was done. Well, Fuji does that though. Yeah, but no, the Fuji just on JPEGs in, though. But those don't look the same as no, they don't. It, it's not they don't go as far as the Fuji presets. I mean, if you look at a, a VSCO or a Maston Labs preset, they're going to be much stronger mm-hmm. than what uh, Fuji's willing to do in camera. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I'm, I, I shouldn't be arguing because I, I take your point absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to draw attention to the book "Film Is Not Dead," which. Um, I read, I guess it was a little while before we had met Cameron and that was part of what influenced me in shooting film again. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, in, in that, uh, Jonathan Canalis, 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 um, he's talk just talks in detail about how it actually saves time in the end. Um, what are some of the points that he brings up in the book? Can you remember anything that, yeah, I mean, mostly, you know, what I said was definitely part of it that, uh, the biggest is not spending that time sorting later. You shoot it and you put the film in an envelope, send it away and forget about it for a week. And when it comes back, you've got way less and you spent more time focusing on each photo. So more of them are likely to be good because you were more careful and you don't need to choose processing on them. They just, they are what they are and you don't need to spend the time. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is I, an expensive book. Wow. The book itself is expensive? <laughs> $125. That's okay. I, I just sent you guys a link and that is not what I paid for this book. <laughs> That's not right. It's not like that. It's a normal book. Yeah. It, well, it says on the, I'm looking on Amazon and it says uh, seven new from $293. <laughs> I see that too. <laughs> and my mind is like all over the place right now. Well, I must've gotten a super deal. If anybody wants to pay me uh, 280 for mine. Yeah. I'll be happy to, to part with it. I think uh, I would actually go for the ten percent version on the Kindle. <laughs> the twenty-eight yeah, dollars, pretty good deal. You gotta hate oh. the kind of pessimism of film. The concept of film potentially dying, and then the person making the case for film not dying, yeah, and that yeah. case it, just to, just to hear it is expensive. I want to uh, drop in the new Kodak camera as well. If you guys already oh, taken yeah, a look the at Super the Super Eight, yeah, yeah, the Super Eight revival announced at CES from Kodak. Which I'm really glad that Kodak finally did something interesting. We'll talk about whether it's useful or important, but it's the most interesting thing I've seen from Kodak for so long. <laughs> yeah, for quite uh, a while. Very beautifully designed product, I think. I think it looks mm-hmm. very elegant and, and, and neat and fun. And uh, something you'd mentioned earlier, Chris, is this would take care of part of your question of being able to scan film. They are including a scanning service as part of the plan for this. So you would you know, oh, purchase wow. your Kodak film, then oh you'd send God. it in and they'll send you back 4K scans. So, so this is a Super 8 film camera? Yeah. Yeah. Did you look at the link? Uh, no, not the link that just popped up. Um, I don't see a link. Here, I'll send another new one. Oh, okay, okay. There it is. <laughs> yeah, because I have actually, uh, as I was referencing that Super 8 or that 8mm film that I have, it's 
essentially a, it's a personal project I'm doing for my dad as a surprise, probably, you know, a year or so from now, maybe two years, but um, it's all of his home movies from growing up and they're all oh, on nice. super eight and, and uh, whatnot. It's, it's coming back soon. We'll all be shooting this and our iPhones will be useless. All <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> right. Listen, 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 that's my super eight camera sitting right here. Beautiful. Which, which is yours? Uh, this is a Chronica eight crown wow. optical limited. I don't know. I got it at like a garage sale or something. Chronica? <laughs> yeah. Like not Conica, but Chronica? Chronica, yeah. The one from uh, Dr. Dre. Does it get you high? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Super 8 camera that I have, I'm holding it in my hand. It's the Kodak Instamatic M4. Oh, that sounds more like a real camera. <laughs> it's from like 1960. Cool. And it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Well, um, this is maybe uh, maybe your solution. Anyway, this Kodak camera, some of the things that this new one does as well is have built-in digital conveniences. So there's a digital viewfinder on it or a screen that you can monitor what's going on and check for exposure, which I think is really smart so that people don't need to potentially get that wrong or think about it. It actually shoots digital as well, which is kind of strange and interesting. It records the audio internally. So you stick a SD card in there and it has a microphone and a mic input. So you can record good audio separately and then somehow play it back i don't really know what their plan is for that maybe you mail the sd card with it or sync it later i don't know but uh you can capture it all um i'm wondering if the digital it records has like a super 8 filter on it or if it just looks normal and <laughs> weird yeah so i don't know it's an it's a really neat and fun product who knows if it'll go well somewhere. not to be left out of this party I uh, I acquired a Super 8 as well. This oh. this uh, <laughs> just a couple weeks ago. Can you play it from your end? Uh, no, it's, it needs batteries. I haven't even. Oh, mine's wind up. Looked at it too much, but it's the it's a old Yashica Sound 20 XL, and I looked it up on eBay and it was selling for ten bucks. Oh. Yeah, so, I just looked up this one as well. It's thirty six dollars. This one, this Instamatic one, I have. So I was expecting to see some like. Several hundred dollar. Well, we just finished talking about the book talking about film is $130. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny. We're all holding uh, relatively cheap or very cheap older Super 8 cameras and then talking about what's probably going to be quite an expensive new one. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could probably use these old ones and just uh, send it into the new Kodak lab. That's mm-hmm. what I'm wondering. Because if yeah. that's the case, I might look into this. Yeah, I would definitely try it. Because it just might be fun, right? Yeah. Okay. That's uh that's the news for today. <laughs> Cameron, you you came up with today's episode idea. Mm-hmm. Are you bored of shooting lately? Is that the deal? Yeah, I've been having I think it might be a time of year situation. Is there a yeah. lot of clicking going on right yeah, now? Yeah, I'm putting my camera back together, sorry. Yeah, so um usually during this time of the year when the weather gets a little bit disagreeable, I I, I have less ideas and you know, I don't know what to do with myself, and I generally just get depressed because there's nothing to shoot, mm-hmm. or I, I feel there's nothing to shoot, and I know better. You know, I know that there's plenty to do. Well, I'd noticed some photos we shot kind of recently that were shot in color and processed in color, and are look ugh, like they're black and white. They look completely without any saturation left in them because it's just kind of snow and dead trees and absolutely nothing with any color in it. And that's what uh, our city looks like lately. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see what you're saying. You know, and it's a shame because uh, I tend to actually really like the light this time of year because it's, mm-hmm. it's so low in the horizon all day. Yeah. 
and uh, it makes things somewhat dramatic. And, and so like there are times when I'm, I feel really inspired, but when it's a gray day, I just, I don't want to, I don't care. I don't want to do anything. But, but you're right. That can be nice. And I've noticed that a few times that at noon in the middle of the day, the sun here, I mean, we're in Canada, so mm-hmm. different everywhere, but ours, yeah. the sun is low enough that you can basically shoot at any time of day and have a pretty decent uh, lighting which is yeah i mean in fact it's actually you can shoot in the in the early part of the day and actually have amazing results if you plan correctly but so are you the kind of shooter that um i don't know like do you generally find yourself seeking inspiration like looking for a subject as opposed to creating one because obviously if somebody was primarily a studio shooter that has people coming by the studio all the time and that's what they shoot or, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, they shoot uh, food primarily in studio. Mm-hmm. Um, things that are more under your control, do you think it wouldn't be affecting you? Or uh... Well, I think that a lot of what inspires me is just how I see things changing around me out, outdoors. And then I start to think about ways I can incorporate that with, you know, maybe human subjects or, or different things. As opposed to in the wintertime, I just look around and see a bunch of dead stuff and I don't feel like doing anything. <laughs> what about you, Chris? How do you feel about this? Yeah, well, I was just wondering, do, I know growing up in Calgary, specifically being in one of the most cinematically desired locations, considering, well, a few things. Uh, I know that a lot of movies are shot here for its um, geographic diversity that we have to go only 30 minutes in any direction to get a pretty different landscape. And if you want to see what that looks like, The Revenant will be coming out soon, which is incredibly beautiful from the trailers. And uh, yeah, it was from about an hour or two away. Yeah. And and The Revenant is a good example of something that makes me kind of feel like I either have a brain that's used to it and is underwhelmed by its, its, its overwhelming beauty. Um, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure if it's my laziness that makes me not capture it in the way that, that like, uh, Emmanuel Lebesky would, uh, he would come <laughs> here and maybe have fresh eyes and see it in that way. Or I wonder if also in the filmmaking sense, if when, you know, you see Revenant, uh, you almost wonder if you were to build a similar set of circumstances as that movie has. So if you get the wardrobe and the hair and makeup and the, the culture, all the Native Americans, all of the the scenes and everything, of course it starts to look even more beautiful. It's not just landscapes, it's this it's this experience that they're capturing mm-hmm. and creating. And well, I wanted to figure out how to reinvigorate my mind. I'm constantly going through of how to actually get myself to pay attention uh, and and look at the world as beautiful as it is. Because I find, you know, most photographers, that's kind of the gift that we have is what is most boring to most people can be interesting to us because we choose to look at it in a certain way or to a certain depth. You see scientists in the same way. They'll look at the most normal thing with the most awestruck mind because they realize how beautiful it is if you look at it deeper or understand it a different way. So I find that that's kind of what I'm trying to do with anything is challenge myself to look at normal things in in abnormal ways. But then I sometimes, you just have to admit to yourself what you do and don't get off on you know like what the mountains are beautiful here but the amount of times we actually feel like pointing a camera at the beauty of the mountains is, is seldom it's not often. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. well and it's funny because there's in calgary especially there's some um, instagrammers that have huge followings and a lot of fans and people that love their work because they go to the mountains all the time and take really beautiful landscape photos and yeah that's not really my jam either 
And because of that, I, I also find it harder to shoot where we are. But I think the first point that you touched on, Chris, was an extremely common one. Like that is very universal, that whatever is around you all the time just becomes the mundane and becomes harder to look at in a new way. And, yeah, you know, we can all relate to that experience of going to a new city. And if it looks different enough, then absolutely anything in it becomes photogenic. And you're walking down an alley and the garbage is beautiful. And, yep. you know, <laughs> uh, just because it's new to you. I, mm. I really had that experience my first time in Asia. Uh, so, uh, well, it was the year before last now, I guess, because it's a new year. In 2014, we went to uh, both Korea and Japan. And that was the most inspired by a location I've been, much more than traveling in the States or Europe in places that are more familiar. Being in Asia, I suspect because it was the most different, was the most interesting for me. I, I just couldn't stop shooting everything. Felt like a photo to me. And I haven't had that experience repeated since, even though I've gone on several other trips. So, you know, I, I think that can play a really big part in how people get interested in, in what they do. Yeah. You know, this is a, this is a, a funny topic because what I find really strange about being a, a professional photographer, being a commercial photographer, doing anything when you're on demand is you have to force your brain to be constantly inspired, constantly creative. Mm -hmm. You have to have a certain internal dialogue in terms of how you're breaking down the challenges and the most successful um, creatives are people that can take the best circumstances and the worst circumstances and create what is almost an indistinguishable sensibility throughout all of it. Yes. And that is one of the greatest challenges and the shitty thing, like any other job really well done is it's relatively thankless where you're the only one sometimes that knows how hard you had it trying to make something that you thought was beautiful out of less beautiful you know, like I often think in terms of Photoshopping and compositing that sometimes when I go out and capture the piece of, of the photo, I'm capturing almost like a palette of paint. And I'm with that paint that I gather, I'm going to go back to Photoshop and, and paint with it and put it mm -hmm. together. And sometimes you're starting with like an uglier palette or like you, what you're saying about even the desaturated nature of Calgary in the wintertime. It really is ugly in a lot of ways. <laughs> and you think, how do I make this interesting or beautiful? Or even if it is ugly and somber and it, if it makes the inhabitants of Calgary generally bummed out by it being less beautiful, that's an opportunity to comment on a real part of being a person too, that something doesn't have to be beautiful for it to be interesting. You know, be interesting. I'm going to guess that my general advice by the end of this is going to be that um, finding a purpose to your work can be the most inspiring thing. And exactly what it is isn't all that important compared to having a purpose for each photo you're taking. So if you um, are trying to get a photo from the top of every mountain in Canada, that is a project that'll keep you moving towards it. You know what the next thing that you need to do is. Or if you're working on a series of portraits of all your friends and family or portraits of all of the tallest people you can find in the city or, you know, just come up with a tangible 
project that would have a specific list of things to shoot. And as you work through them, you'll be able to figure out what the next one is because it fits into that set. So each one can become creative in the differences between that and the last one, but uh, you don't need to come up with a whole new idea every time. So for me lately, I mean, I felt pretty slow and blocked as well. Like the things I, I've been kind of inspired about creating other stuff. I've been working on my blog more lately and like podcast stuff is exciting to me and kind of side projects. Uh, Star Wars has been exciting to me lately, <laughs> uh, but I haven't been inspired to shoot, but I still have been shooting because working with Anya on the blog is a constant project. So mm-hmm. we know that we need to put out a certain amount of photos of her in different outfits and showing off Uh, different pieces every month and we just need to shoot that no matter what so i don't stop shooting it because that's just a thing that we do so once it becomes a thing you do it's much easier to know what the next thing you're going to do is you know if you take someone like uh like you two both respectively pump out good volumes of of work you're you're professional to the degree that you're constantly going Mm -hmm. and i know myself i think if i could be candid and honest, I would say I'm not that. I have had a hard couple of years. Uh, my personal life has challenged my my mind and my opinion of my own life and, and what I wanted to do with it and everything to a degree that I, I went months and months and months and months. Like I essentially, for a good two-year gap about two years ago, was not a professional photographer. I made like nominal amount of money doing it, but it was just like it died. And mm. that... Uh, that's real. The thing that's weird about it is um, I often want to hear the tips and the tricks of the people that are successful, but in a weird way, you know, no one can really say that they're all successful all the time. And one thing that not a lot of people are willing to admit publicly is to say, I, uh, you know, I have the hardest time juggling uh, the pressure I put on myself or the standard of excellence I want out of myself or Oh, the, the the fact that sometimes I really don't like my own work or um, the the real stresses that come from this and and that it's it's relatable in a human way not just a professional photographer way but in a human way and uh, per, like personally I I just think staying inspired is is almost one of the most important things because it makes me actually want to live my life and like want to get out there and make memories for myself and in terms of creating art that actually gets out there and it puts smiles on people's faces or gives perspective or Mm -hmm. um it's really sharing with the world in a way that you you kind of feel is right then it's worth it like to to constantly challenge yourself to stay inspired um you know i remember i I heard this corny quote years ago that was from a guy named zig ziglar and he said that uh people say that inspiration doesn't last but that's why you have to do it daily it's like bathing so the the job to almost figure out what keeps you interested in aesthetics is is your job. It's it's like one of the things that we have to actually juggle is how do I stay as interested in my life and what I'm looking at as I'm asking my audience to be in my photos. If I'm going to put stuff out there and say, "Hey people, be interested in this." I better be the first person that's interested in it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So It's great. Those are th- those are real challenges and I know personally in a very humble way, I'm deeply challenged by that. Chris, there's a project, I shouldn't call it a project, there's a thing you do that you uh, kind of have been doing for a while now of just making little things without too much reason behind it or too much concern about how uh, 
well you pull it off or whatever, where you'll just Photoshop a little silly whatever, or you'll do a quick little video demo of a After Effects thing. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, like an inconsequential, I call them creations for no reason. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, well, tell me more about it. I mean, I shouldn't talk about it too much. It's your thing, but I think I think it's great. Basically, I think it's, you don't get so caught up in it being your best work ever. You just know that you're doing, uh, it's like a doodle. One of the things that happened, I think, in a negative way to photography to me when I became a professional photographer, uh, photographer is when I got into it, when I was growing up, I took photos for memory's sake. That's how I started I, is that I lived things and I captured those memories and what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then as I got better and better and started to sculpt it, it started to not only become more of a job because it was a, it was a lot more work to actually make good stuff. But when I started to charge for it, I stopped creating for no reason and for memory's sake and in a giving sense because I realized, well, if I'm charging for it over here, I don't want to give it away too often because then people think I, you know, it's not worth anything. And mm -hmm. the weird thing about wanting to do good work all the time, there is no difference other than overhead sometimes. There's no difference of what I will charge a client for one day, which is like $1,000, $1,500, whatever. And when I choose to do it for fun the next day, there's no difference in how well I do it. So when someone is just so lucky to be around me on a ski trip, you know, then they're <laughs> essentially like, <laughs> they're the beneficiary of, of that art. And it, that's a weird feeling to kind of juggle. And I, what I started to do less of was shoot for memory's sake, like just take memory photos. I really saw that when I, when I was in college, which I, I to refresh everyone, I wasn't in photography in college, but I had friends that were, and I found that when I hung out with them, I'd often be the only one with my camera most of the time that just kind of was dragging it around and taking photos of absolutely anything and everything, even though most of it wasn't very good. Um, and I've, I've seen that, that there's, uh, there's definitely different types of professionals that some of them keep taking snapshots as they become pros and some do not. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know, you know, it's not right or wrong. You don't have to do one or the other. I realize that as it becomes your job instead of your hobby, you know, that has a real effect on how you look at it and how you feel about doing it. But I mean, I like to try to hold on to a bit of that casualness about it, about it still being for personal reasons or for fun or. Yeah. I tend to think that those, those casual reasons are the most important reasons to hold a camera. Because that's when you're really going to capture something that's really meaningful. Well, I, that's actually something that's weird. That's, uh, I agree with it, and I completely don't agree with that at the same time. <laughs> uh, in the way that my goal, like my end goal, is to be a feature film director. And mm -hmm. directing a film, uh, if it's not improv and it's not you know, a documentary, it's all contrived. It's all fake. Yep. It's multiple takes. It's, it's a big con, you know? Mm -hmm. So that is, it's weird because I totally agree with you where those casual moments are even real in filmmaking where you see like top 10 things that were left in movies that were those natural moments. It's like the Han Solo saying, I know, like, I love you. I know. And you think, wow, that's so special. And that's the heart of it. But there's a lot of other heart that is completely contrived and completely created. And that, that was one of my favorite quotes. Uh, I can't remember who to, to attribute it to, but when I was in photography school, uh, and I was doing more of kind of like a studio, uh, like a setup style of photography, not a docu style or photojournalistic, but I was creating is, uh, mm -hmm. the, the quote said, create something so beautiful that you have to take a photo of it. Mm -hmm. And 
I honestly believe that what I do from behind the camera in terms of my personality is I'll even create moments. Like I will be the guy that will instigate what is happening around me. And that will be so beautiful sometimes that it's, it's a beautiful photo. Like Mm -hmm. people are laughing and they're, and even like Tyler, if you think about the way that you, you do um, uh, in terms of fashion and, and the kind of sensibility, if you weren't constantly creating the tone and the feel of how you felt with your subjects and how they felt with you and the, the surrounding environment, it wouldn't come across with that really obvious sensibility that you believed that it was actually cool. Like if I was there looking at what you just photographed, I would have felt like a cool person, you know, cause that's cool. No, I, I actually agree with everything that you just said. I think that it's just that for me personally, I went through an almost identical type of identity crisis with my work as you described previously. And uh, it wasn't until I had something to photograph casually that I felt like was actually important, which was the birth of my son that I actually kind of got back to to re-exploring how that felt and then re-engaging myself as a photographer with the idea of of capturing something that at least feels authentic. And I think that that's what you were also describing with uh, the Han Solo quote. It's about a human connection. When I've spent more time hanging out with friends that are, you know, just kind of nerds and want to play video games the photos I take around them are not that exciting <laughs> compared to, you know, I don't know if people, if all your friends happen to be skydivers yeah, uh, or yeah. that's, you know, that's your hobby instead of computers, you will have better photos. Like <laughs> it just, you can't help it because totally. the things around you are more interesting. And you just nailed exactly what I feel like my main issue is right now is, you know, I have a ton of commitments and it's really hard for me to go out and engage with new people right now. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't been inspired by other people's lifestyles right. and in recognizing the the beauties in them and then wanting to share that. And so that's kind of what's been such a frustration for me is because I'm just looking around trying to see what's out there that is beautiful. And because I'm not terribly into it right now, none of it is is really forcing me to to be happy about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to just comment on a couple of different things. One was Tyler, when you asked me about kind of the creation for no reason uh, mentality, uh, one one thing I'm trying to get out of my own way with is almost like in a Jackson Pollock type fashion of like, get out of the way of your own controlled consciousness and just let something come out of you. And the amount of times that I have gone into like after effects and started to just dick around with random sliders, random text, scroll through fonts, create with colors. And I'll just end up somewhere that I could never have guessed. I would be just trying to follow my reaction pattern and that is a, that's a kind of a, an amazing thing. But I also think when you get better taste and you make better decisions, you can spend like 10 minutes and actually make something good. You can make mm-hmm. something that actually has color theory implicitly ingrained in it because you're not the type of person that picks colors out of sync anymore. You pick natural colors. You pick good type. You, yes. you, you understand how to process. You don't even know that you know it anymore. It's just your unconscious behavior. And I think... The more I can do that and share that, I kind of think if I were to die tomorrow, I would have hated that I didn't share that type of stuff. You know, it, it really is coming down to mortality of how short life is sometimes. You can think, why wouldn't I share as much as possible? And if it goes out there and inspires someone and inspires me to do it, then I think it's a worthy process. Before I forget it, I wanted to comment on just something that inspired me lately 
uh, documentary that inspired me. I wanted to see if you guys had seen it, but it's on Netflix and it's called Tim's Vermeer. Yeah, I love that movie. That was great. Either of you seen it? Yeah, so. I haven't seen it. That movie is essentially about a software engineer named Tim. He's a, he's a good friend of Penn and Teller, um, Penn Gillette. They're like best friends. And he is certain that the Dutch painter, Dutch Renaissance painter Vermeer was more of a tinkerer and like a nerd than he was an artist, even though he was an artist and he's revered as being just this incredible Renaissance painter. He was certain that he used mechanical means and he's kind of more of an engineer Hmm. than he was a painter because his paintings are so precise and so beautifully um, perfect. So he's like the HDR photographer of his day. Yeah. (laughs) And, and what was, what's amazing is essentially he's set on the fact that Vermeer must have done that. So Tim says, I will find out the way he did that. I'm going to, I'm going to try and find out the methods that he did. And as soon as I do find out those methods, I'm going to paint a Vermeer. So mm-hmm. the whole movie, the documentary is about him creating a Vermeer to the same quality and the same standard of perfection and painting it in the same way. And, uh, and that's and what the documentary is It's incredible about. how successful he is at the end too. You really have to, you, you, you should watch it. It'll, it'll be in show notes. So it's an incredible movie that I couldn't suggest more to everyone because one of the things that I often battle with is how an idea won't come to me like right off the bat. And I feel like I'm less of an artist because I'm left with tools that I have to sculpt kind of ideas. And I'm like, I should be the idea guy. Mm-hmm. I should be just constantly having ideas and that I shouldn't like, aren't I supposed to be an artistic visionary? Like, isn't that what I'm convincing myself? I am. Mm-hmm. It's on your business card, right? Yeah, totally. And, I, <laughs> and then I kind of realize not only is that not the case and probably never will be the case, but I don't think it's even the case that often for people that I think it is like, right. there's a lot more people that use tools and that build more than they just react. Um, and I guess it's not necessarily in a comparison sense of me, me compared to the next person out there that may or may not be a visionary. I just have to be more honest with me. And like for, for me talking to me, I have to say, who am I and what am I working with here? And if it's, I need to inspire myself by going for a run and, and maybe going traveling once a year and, Cameron, like you say, with your son, like I adore playing with, I, like I love kids. Every time I'm around kids, I have a bunch of my kids, cousins have kids. Mm-hmm. I don't personally have kids, but they like invigorate my brain. Like they, they, Absolutely. they make me wonder again, like just a ton where I'm like, oh my God, this world is so incredible. But that is what I'm working with. That really, when it comes down to each of us respectively, that's the conversation we have to have with ourselves because that's all we have is we are working with our own brains. Well said. Hey, uh, Cameron, I know you got to run soon. Do you want to throw any uh, pick of the week in uh, before you do? Yeah, sure. Um, first, I just want to say thank you, Chris, because that sounds exactly like the kind of thing I need to watch to kind of get the juices flowing. Oh, you'll love it, man. You'll yeah, love it. it. sounds really great. I would be surprised. Like, are you a painter? No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, you will want to be a painter after the end of it. You'll be like, I can paint. I, bar- I guarantee when you watch it, you'll think, I could do that. <laughs> Like, Another thing I don't have time to do. That's... Yeah, well, it takes them like it takes them like two thousand days or something. To you know, do. I think this Amazing. ties into why uh, coloring books are so popular lately, too. Yes, I think that there's a good case for that. Um, I like I said, I haven't been terribly inspired by things photography, and also I haven't heard any new music that I was really interested in. Maybe that's the source of the problem. Yeah, it probably is actually, and <laughs> I'm not sure if if we're going to be using this as inspiration, but um, I've been super engrossed in this making a murder oh yeah show on netflix oh yeah you you tweeted about this too chris right you guys have both been watching this i didn't watch it yet so tell me why i should uh because it's 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 
one of the most fascinating and disturbing real life stories that you'll ever watch. Oh yeah. I don't think that you can really talk about it without giving too much of it away. And you just have to see it because everything that happens, you'll just go, Oh my God. You know, I, I tweeted yesterday after completing the series. Um, it's just, there's so many things to say about it, obviously. Right. Yeah. But the tweet I said is before I watched the series, I say that Manitowoc County was probably in my top 20 places I wanted to visit. Now it's easily in the top five. <laughs> and that's, a total sarcastic Manitowoc <laughs> County looks like the worst place on earth. Yeah, you never want to go. Yeah. And then considering the local government, it's like, okay, it is outstanding. The, the, I guess what I like <laughs> the most about it in terms of a social commentary of what it means to people like us and the people, you know, fellow Americans is it's surprising to think that any first world nation could ever have developed a judicial system that has that strong of a bias. And is that irrational? considering the way that we all think it it's a surprise to know that it could work like that anywhere anyway i uh i i'm sorry but i have to i have to step out of the recording well thanks for joining us anyway cameron <laughs> yeah sorry no worries yeah no i, I appreciate it. this is a really good conversation i appreciate everyone being honest because this type of subject is uh, something that i hope that more creatives would be honest with other creatives about because yeah. uh, i said it's like a it's a human thing you know so i th- this reminded me of one more thing i had been thinking about before we started recording. And that's just that personally, I came to a place of some comfort with this at one point in my life when I realized just how much this is a cycle for me of working really, really hard for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, some amount of time where I have a million ideas and it feels like I can't get enough done and I can't do enough of the things I've thought of. And then there's absolutely nothing for some period of time after that. And as that continued to happen over and over in my life, I finally was able to acknowledge it as a pattern and that, you know, maybe it doesn't mean that I'm completely broken. And I heard from other people that operated in similar ways. And I think realizing that and accepting it for me has let me both be more comfortable when I am being productive and when I'm not. And to really embrace those times that I feel like I have, you know, more ideas than I can do and try to get as many of them out there as I can. And if I don't have any great ideas, then maybe I can just, um, you know, do the work that needs to be done around me, just continue being generally productive as much as I can, but not feel guilty and not beat myself up for, um, you know, not being the creative genius that my business card says. Yeah. And, uh, I, I totally align with that. I think that ebb and flow kind of nature to the creative process is not only just in a way it's generic and cliche, Mm -hmm. the more you just search, you Google the creative process and it's like right there. (laughs) But, uh, this is like a one one class in it, by the way, I'm sure this is the first thing you would read in many articles is the stuff we're going over today. Oh yeah. Which is, which is hilarious. But I, one thing that I do like to comment on is how fallible I still feel my process is and how human at regardless of any perceived place, I don't care if anyone looks at me and thinks that I am better at doing something or that I am more refined. There are certain things that you naturally do become better and more refined. It's just how things work. But I I just constantly want people to not segregate themselves emotionally and, and feel like they're alone in that process. Just knowing that, there are things that are pushing me in in my own way in the same way that anyone listening right now, they're being pushed. So 
I often say that about uh, if a person's overwhelmed by computers and I'm trying to show them something on the computer and they're like, oh, it's just overwhelming. I'm like, don't have any disillusions thinking that I'm not overwhelmed by computers. It's just I'm overwhelmed by different things about computers. I know that currently learning any 3D software or visual effects software, you know, you, I, I swear, you think you learn Photoshop and you think you learn After Effects and you're like, yeah, I am Got I'm good. Yeah. And then you dive, into some, you dive into some crazy shit and you're like, wow. And, and that is just learning how to use software. And then, you know, if you are like, I think I'm going to learn how to code. But it's more or less just kind of trusting the process that it's a, it's an ebb and a flow and an up and a down. Uh, and you honor very simple principles to be successful. And I think principles like patience and persistence, they're as high up there as anything. I remember actually seeing, I must have been looking through favorites or something, because uh, I saw a tweet of yours from a while ago that said, I think you said the less that I post on Instagram, it has a direct correlation with how much I overthink each post. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've wanted to say a version of that a couple of times, which is, uh, I know this is kind of pessimistic and kind of cynical, but there's a direct correlation with the, the frequency of my Instagram and Twitter posts with how excited I am about my life. Mm -hmm. And I go into these blank zones where I don't post anything. And like, I know, Every time I go to New York, for instance, I have like a post a day at least or two. Yeah. And then I will go the last month, for instance, where I'll have one for the month. Well, yeah. If you look at my Instagram right now, you would think I don't live in Calgary. You think I only travel because I just haven't posted anything while I'm home for it feels like a few months now. I've really only been posting once I travel. And, yeah. and uh, it's not because really, there's nothing good to post here. I just... But I, but uh, you know. on the other end of this, this is kind of what being an artist is all about. Actually, if I were to say the one thing I really adore about artists that do it at very high levels is I appreciate that they care so much about what they do for me that, that I feel, I, I feel thankful. Like for instance, when I go see a movie that is masterfully made and I know that they made it for an audience, I'm grateful to say you care this much about me. And I adore that artists, essentially all you're doing is you're curating the human experience into little snippets. And you're saying, I am living my life, but out of everything I'm living and all things I'm thinking and all things I'm seeing, this is what I'm choosing to show you because I think it's, I think it's good. Mm -hmm. And I think this is like, there's a lot of ugly things that I'm not posting a lot of directions. I don't point my camera. So I think that curation is really what it's all about is how you choose to narrow down the overwhelming complexity of the world into these little snippets of beauty and moments and good things. And that's, that is the artistic sensibility that any artist, that's all you're ever working with. Well, yeah, think about an Instagram account that is all about somebody's pet. Yeah. There are very successful accounts that are all about, you know, one or two pets. And then there's, oh, yeah. there's so many horribly boring, you know, the accounts that are just poorly chosen, poorly edited photos where they really should have just selected a better moment to present to the world. Yeah. And, you know, I referenced early in this conversation that, um, while I was in photography school, I was a, I was a dick and I still am. And I, I'm trying to work on that because ideally I want to be honest and, and candid all the time. I want to tell the truth. Well, that sounded pretty and, candid. Well, yeah. I want a lot of people to actually know that when they come to me and I say something, it's what I meant mm -hmm. in the way I meant it, not some interpretation of it or whatever. But Tact needs to be used massively in this in this way, but I'll give you an example. So the amount of people that at something like NAB, for instance, the National Association of Broadcasting in Vegas every year, the amount of people I meet, 
they will get into a dialogue that uh, it's uh, okay. So they'll say, are you on Twitter? And you say, yeah, I'm on Twitter. And they'll say, are you on Instagram? And yeah, yeah, I'm on Instagram. And they might say something like, Hey, yeah, like follow me or let's follow each other. And my automatic response to that is just a single question that says, are you followable? And people don't like that too often, mm -hmm. but the truth is look at your own account and would <laughs> yeah. you follow you? Yeah. And that is, totally. that's what you're asking me to do. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that opinion from enough other people. That's how I look at it. And I know, I think that some people think I may be kind of snobby because of it, but I really think these services work much, much better for everyone. But for me, especially if I don't, you know, if I want to be friends with you, I'll be friends with you on Facebook and on these places, I'm going to follow people that are putting a lot of effort into producing content that can give me a feed that is interesting. It, to me, these aren't primarily about socializing. The main thing that both Twitter and Instagram do to me is put a feed in front of my face of interesting stuff. And I only have so much time in the day to flip through it. And if most of that time is consumed flipping by people that don't take their posts very seriously, then I'm missing out on something great from someone else. So I, I follow relatively few people. Most of them aren't my friends. Most of them are influencers, uh, bloggers, websites, like news sites, people that really consider each thing that they post because I know that they kind of are pre-appreciating my time. Um, so anyway, if you're my friend and I'm not following you on one of these things, please, please, please don't be offended. I don't, it's nothing personal. I absolutely will be your friend on Facebook and like all your photos, but, but that's, that's where I go to do that is on Facebook. And to yeah, me, I mean, the other ones are about, you know, please like present me with the most interesting content that you can. And I have a similar kind of feeling towards Instagram and, and Twitter specifically on the volume of people I'm, I follow because I'm looking at it right now and I follow 85 people on Instagram and 241 people on Twitter. And I think that's already overwhelming. Right. Like I think that it, I would like to actually look at every post on Instagram every day or as often as possible. And it gets way out of hand for my attention of what I can give it all. And ideally, if I'm going to curate my own experience, so I am able to choose what is going through my own feeds, then I don't want to just join Twitter and do like the follow for follow kind of route yeah. in terms of thinking that, oh, it's all about just connecting with people. I think if I'm going to connect with them, someone, I actually want to connect with them in like the same kind of sense as they say, like, a, you know, uh, primarily our, our tribe size is like 150 or something, right? Mm -hmm. Of how, how many people we can actually care about. And I definitely know when I get over that. And I think I'd rather honor that than some other illusion that uh, isn't, that's not real. I was just checking uh, and I follow kind of basically the exact inverse of what you said. So on Twitter, I follow 77 people and on Instagram, I follow 249. So Yeah. And um, th that's kind of just the the truth of the situation now because of the uh, the times where um, I, I guess I, I think I said this earlier that I feel like a digital hoarder in a lot of ways. But um, in terms of follow uh, like who I'm following and the ways that I'm uh, developing these masses of things, I, I can't declutter often enough. Yeah. Like yeah. go through a list of people and and think, you know. I have to X off a few of these things or else the whole experience suffers. That's the thing. I know that if I started following everybody on Twitter, I would stop using it. I'd stop being interested when I open it. Cause I'd be like, well, that's just going to be a bunch of clutter, a bunch of 
this was my breakfast type tweets. And I like that when I open it now, there's a pretty good chance that the only things I'll see will be somewhat interesting to me. So, well, uh, like the other thing is whether or not I want to, um, I want to sum up. There's a couple of things that you can follow on Twitter that are essentially, it'll be like, a. okay. So I follow Brandon Stanton, who is the humans of New York, a photographer, okay. you know him, obviously, you know, humans of New York, right? So it's incredible, right? Amazing. But since following him and having him kind of cut individual photo and caption tweets, I started to wonder, is it actually as good of an experience or, or what's the better experience following him on Twitter and getting little snippets of it all the time or prompting the website and dedicating my full attention for like 20 minutes and reading a bunch at once or even better buying one of his books and sitting down like, right. I'm, I'm the exact same way with the sartorialist. I have tried following him and I kind of get bored of it. So instead I prefer to go back to the blog and look at everything that he's done for the last few weeks. And I think that, that that's kind of, again, knowing what type of person you are. And in the same sentiment that I said earlier is that we, we don't actually, the goal is never to compare ourselves with other people and how the other people's habits are. It's really what, what do you know you like and how do you know, you know, uh, that you like your attention to be paid and what are you actually interested in? And then not trying to lie to yourself and say that some, some other thing. And, uh, I think that that's when you have the, the most genuine subjective experience is when you align as, you know, holistically as possible with what you're actually working with. And I know I love Twitter and I know I love Instagram for these reasons. If I didn't actually feel like I was in control of it and feeling like I, like it was autonomous, like I was the creator of my own experience, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I'd like it at all. Like you say, if you followed all these people, you just would stop using it. I want to, uh, I want to slightly cut you off too, cause we're running pretty long and I want to run even longer. Cause I want to talk to you about star Wars. Um, <laughs> but okay. So first, <laughs> uh, let's, let's quickly get through picks. Cause I, I don't want to just say star Wars is my pick. So my pick really directly relates to what we we're talking about today, and I may have even mentioned it previously. It's a podcast I've always enjoyed uh, on the 5x5 network called Back to Work, and it's a really popular one, so people may have heard of it. It's with Marla Mann and Dan Benjamin, where they uh, you know, spend half the show just mm, talking about nothing, and then uh, usually have some pretty good insights in the areas of, well, this, uh, staying inspired, getting getting stuff done, getting back to work, uh, without the mumbo jumbo -iness of, well, well, I, I'm not a big fan of the self help as a thing. Like most self help books in that section are completely uninteresting to me. And I think that the show has, um, you know, often has pretty great insights that acknowledge that we are all very different and operate in different ways and that there isn't a universal secret to it. So, yeah. And I suppose, um, if I'm going to make a pick as well, which, which I'm guessing that's what you want. Yes, me to please. Do. Um, I would give, uh, I, I know I've talked about this to you, uh, personally before, uh, even directly after, uh, doing one of the other podcasts, I said that this was what I was going to do is, um, going to a Vipassana, ret uh, meditation retreat. Oh yeah, that's um, right. I went around a year ago in the, the winter of last year, and I'm going to be going on the 21st of this month again. So I'm going for another 10-day silent meditation Vipassana retreat. And it's so amazingly personal and subjective and it's sculpted to the experience of whatever your brain is when you close your eyes and you, and you focus your mind. Uh, whatever you're working with is what you're working with. And the, 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 the kind of relationship I've developed with this I think is 
it's maybe one of the most proactive and productive things I've ever chosen to do regularly because this will be the third time that I've gone. And the confidence that I'm getting in the process itself for me is essentially backed up by the amount of places that I am seeing seeing it in 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 the world in terms of like other leaders, other people I respect, and other successful people. Um, I, I just see this constant thread of meditation being the practice that they all manage. And if there's anything that ties this huge group of people together that are unassociated by any other uh, means, it seems like they're all meditators. So I'll I'll kind of. Uh, give another recommendation, which is a book that I just finished today. It's not a new book. It's uh, many years old now, but it's Creativity Inc., which is by Ed Catmull, who is the president of Pixar. And essentially, Creativity Inc. is about what it is like to run Pixar. And uh, it's Pixar's challenges, Pixar's history. And it's, you know, instead of being so specific as to what it's like to run Pixar, it's more or less what it's like to manage a, a, a culture of creative people. So how do you, how do you actually maintain the challenges and, and rise up to the challenges of managing um, the most important things? So you can come across as a company like Pixar that seems to be batting a thousand again and again and again and again. What are the common practices and common kind of mentalities that they do that with? And it was very interesting uh, but as to tie this back into my my first uh, pick, being meditation, Vipassana meditation specifically, at the end of this book, it surprised me yet again because Ed Catmull, who is again the president of Pixar, has a chapter on his relationship with Vipassana meditation. So it just, again, cemented my own personal belief on on the journey that I've had in in it and more or less the responsibility of my own consciousness and my own sanity uh, and making sure that I'm continuing the journey as a continuum and I'm doing the actual work that needs to be done, which is to actually sit down, actually close my eyes and actually instigate my own experience, like calm myself actively. I think that's some pretty good follow-up because I just checked and it was almost, almost exactly a year ago that you were, they were here last. So yeah, I think that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I also, I, well, I stand by both things you were saying, um, creativity Inc. I, th- I think it was something I picked on a episode at one point too. And I thought it was really great. And also just in terms of meditation, I have never ended up following through with it much myself, which you and I have talked about offline before, but, um, it's definitely something that I have heard more and more positive things about from sources that, you know, I'd consider not to be to uh, hippy-dippy, flaky, um, you know, what previous perceptions of meditation would have necessarily um, been tied to, or also, you know, being not necessarily religious as well, just being a way to focus and uh, move yourself forward. So I, uh, I just noticed that I actually have to go somewhere and don't have time to talk about Star Wars like I wanted to. Um, Let's just do it again. Cause I actually, um, I'm meeting someone in four minutes. Okay, good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just noticed the time. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's catch up later. And, uh, if anybody missed it, I talked to my friend Rob Mitchelson about star Wars for 90 minutes already. So, uh, you know, start with that and then, uh, maybe we'll add a little more in later. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining me, Chris. Cool. Thanks. Spoiler alert. Please see Star Wars The Force Awakens before proceeding. And we're back after a short break 
Chris and I uh, have a few things that we wanted to say about The Force Awakens, which has nothing to do <laughs> with cameras, but, um, you know, it's something wait, I really wait, love. So. It has nothing to do with cameras. Well, okay, obviously there are a lot of connections to, ca- <laughs> to cameras, <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't necessarily tie into the theme of the show. I'm just guessing that there's some amount of uh, people with similar interests you to know, us. I, I'm just imagining kind of like the hypothetical Venn diagram of the cameras or whatever circle and then the Force Awakens circle, and I imagine the overlap to be considerable. Well, it's going to have to be after uh, after all this uh, Star Wars talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, what's your what's your overall from the movie? How did you feel walking out of it? Um, you know, like I saw it about three days after it came out and inside of the regular fanfare. And I think that that actually is most people that would admit that they saw it in that kind of first week would ad- would think that the first week viewing is is an added, you know, uh, cultural kind of significance that it actually adds to the actual experience of sitting and and watching the movie in front of you while you're in the theater because mm-hmm. it's playing inside the theater of your mind as well. They've done such an amazing job with the uh like the ethos and the, the the kind of world building of how you feel about the brand and how you feel about the movie and the franchise itself. And that feeling um was mastered this time around. They've done it now through the original trilogy the prequel trilogy, uh, it was a completely different way that they tried to go about it. They learned through are, their bumps. Are you of, uh, into the prequels, by the way? I'd like to meet a person that's into the prequels. <laughs> I'd like to <laughs> meet heard, one single person that was like, those movies are good. I've heard people mildly defend them. I, I don't know many people that love them, but um, you know, I've definitely heard people say they enjoyed them. And yeah, for, for, I was young enough that I enjoyed the first viewing of the Phantom Menace. Like, I don't think I realized right away how bad it was. Yeah. Uh, it took a few, (laughs) I had to go back to the theater a few more times to realize, wait a minute. And then I I actually didn't go see episode two because I I was so disillusioned. Really? I saw all of them in theaters. Um, I I saw Revenge of the Sith twice in theaters, but Attack the Clone zero times in theaters. I guess the one thing that made those prequels good as an experience is pretty much exactly what I'm commenting on in seeing it in the first week, like the force awakens in the first week is the culture right. of seeing it was fun. Like totally, you know, yeah, that getting alone being part of the excitement yeah. was, was, was exciting. And I went through and listened to a lot of other people's reviews of the previous movies leading up to this one's release. And a lot of people's feedback about their impressions of any of the movies were the story of going to see it for the first time. So part of my thoughts after, now that there's a bit of distance from having first seen it and uh, already having done a longer review of it, that was very, very positive. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, I definitely think that some of it is it just influenced on the success of that cultural moment. And for me, the success was, it was really high. Like I appropriately had my hopes lowered and then it far exceeded those expectations. So, you know, for me, it uh, it definitely worked. Yeah, same here. I, I was quite happy with just the reality that I was excited while I was watching it. And I was excited after it finished. Like I, the entire thing, that's the best word I can use is I was excited. And if I am ever excited by art or a movie or, or anything, uh, I'll take it. So I, I kind of find it funny because we measure the success of the movie and the franchise by its total grossing box office numbers. But the, the single event of any one person going to watch Star Wars, you pay exactly the same for that product as you do the shittiest movie that ever goes in the theater, <laughs> right. yeah. which is bizarre. You know, you think you pay your 15 bucks and you go in there and you get this completely different experience, right? So as for the movie itself, I was most satisfied as a person that regularly film uh, tears films apart um, in terms of craft, 
story and so on and so forth. I like when a movie polishes each category. So the best way I can kind of describe it, uh, you see this a lot with, well, you and I are Wes Anderson fans. And in Wes <laughs> Anderson movies, you, you, you almost think anywhere where they could have put art, they put art. And in The Force Awakens, I was so happy to see that they had – they had really gone into each category of world building, you know, um, uh, hair and makeup, wardrobe, cinematography, visual effects, story, character, you know, sound effects, sound design. Like they, they did everything. And um, yeah. you wouldn't say that any of those categories potentially are tens, a 10 out of 10. When you have a, a movie that performs so excellently like this, if it has any fault or flaw at all, then that fault appears bigger, I think perceptibly bigger. Right. And the only real complaints I'd heard were story related, I'd say. I don't think anybody said it was visually bad. You know, maybe some people said that the uh, CGI characters didn't work for them. That was one thing. Yeah. One thing um, is, uh, I can't even which the, remember I mean, his name, the main bad guy. Sno- Snoke. Snoke, yeah. Snoke. Uh, or Snope? Snoke? <laughs> Snoop. Snoop. <laughs> so... I'm wondering what he will look like in uh, not in a holographic uh, representation because mm-hmm. I think it's in The Empire Strikes Back when the Emperor is a big hologram, right? Um, in a very similar way. Yep. And uh, I, I kind of assume that this is going to be kind of just a tiny little dude for how huge of a hologram he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, uh, yeah, I was saying in the other review that I'd be most surprised if he is either normal size or uh, best of all, if he was actually that large, I think that'd be the most surprising thing because <laughs> <laughs> nobody expects him to be big at this point. Yeah, no, 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 definitely. Um, that was um, like that hologram and that CG. It, I don't know if anything, it kind of pulled me out of the moment. Like it seemed like it was abruptly different than the rest of the film by the time that first scene came on and you saw it for the first time. So <laughs> there was that, I guess, but most of the tiny little things like I know, in terms of uh, the choice of reveal of Kylo Ren when he takes off his uh, his helmet, that was uh, not my favorite thing. They could have maintained his uh, his character inside of the mask for longer. Maybe even have uh, Adam Driver play him in the first movie and have you never see his face and have him like maintain the the his obsession with Darth Vader and that his hair was so like Pantene Pro V like perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. I realized after my longer review that a lot of my assumptions of how good this is going to be is that they will pay it off in the sequels. Um, so, you know, if they really fall down on, on all these things, it won't work. But my hope and assumption is that they are giving him more room. Whereas Darth Vader was presented as a complete character that is, you know, towards the end of his life and knows what he thinks and is mm-hmm. only going to act one way. And he is just, He's just, you know, bad, bad, bad. And they only give him any room to change right towards the end. Like, nothing is changing about him until Return of the Jedi, really. Um, but in this case, Kylo's given a lot of room to, like, clearly his his character arc is probably going to be a very large one. He'll massively change, you know, at least as much as, as Luke did, um, assuming they follow through with what it feels like they set up to me. So, uh, you know, they could blow it. They could let all of these loose ends at the uh, end really um they could leave the loose ends and they could make us it somewhere they could they could go somewhere productive and, and right well i was gonna say or they could not uh, yeah, yeah. but could I'm, i've been assuming that they have i, I don't um, know why given the, the size of this franchise and who's you know in charge of it in terms of 
producing and directing. I don't know why they wouldn't be doing some sort of masterclass. In, to touch in, on the visual side a bit, what do you think did and didn't work? How, especially, how did you feel about the computer-generated characters and the balance of uh, CG effects and practical effects? Um, like it was, it was amazing. Uh, things all over the place were done. Not only inside of my ex- expectations of like being a quite the fan of um, good and bad visual effects and and visual examples and screenshots, like I, I have a huge library of what I considered to me to be my knowledge leading up to a movie like this, and then they exceeded um, in terms of like mixing real world and VFX in so many ways that that it was imperceptible ninety percent of the time, where you just didn't know where the real set would end, where the mats would begin. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's now after um, the last couple of weeks, I've seen a couple of things from the original trilogy. Um, I think it was Gizmodo or The Verge uh, posted on Twitter the original matte paintings from the original movies. Right, I saw those. Yeah. And that that's mind-blowing when you think, oh my God, I had no idea. Even though you know that that's not uh, a set or space isn't, you know, they're not in this big ship, you almost think... I don't know. They, I didn't know what I thought, to be honest. Right. <laughs> I just, well, see, I didn't think about it when I was young. But then that you see that, yeah, it's an oil painting. Yeah, <laughs> like and it's, you think it's an actual matte painting. And mm-hmm. now matte paintings are all digital and it's all in 3D space and it's all composited you know, brilliantly. Mm-hmm. But where it started and where it ended, uh, it was imperceptible. And they just yeah. did it perfectly. But one of the things that I also – I can't remember who said it. might have been Carrie Fisher. might have been um, – what's, what's her name? Daisy uh, – Ridley? Ridley, yeah. Uh, I can't remember. Someone had said that when they went on set for the first time and it was uh, such a robust, big world that had been built practically, it really just made you feel like you were on another planet. And in the essence of getting the feeling on set to come across as genuine and have these characters feel as though they are those characters and they're in that world, that really came across too, that it felt otherworldly. In, a, in right. a really amazing way. And I think that uh, the way that they went above and beyond with practical set builds helped us as an audience, but it also, it, but it inherently helped uh, us as an audience by helping the cast and the crew and, and, and everyone really buy into the concepts. I've seen some interesting examples on YouTube from the prequels of moments where the actor's performance really gives away that they were not performing to anything. Uh, the best moment is when Obi-Wan is standing in front of General Grievous and Grievous starts spinning all his lightsabers around. And Ewan McGregor is just standing there with just no no movement at all. He's just waiting for something to happen. And you can tell it's because he was just looking at a spot on the wall when the action happening is like, okay, my opponent is preparing to attack. He's flailing around to try to intimidate me. Like obviously either he would step back or step forward or he would, there would be a reaction if this was at all a practical moment. Um, And yeah, it just really, it kills it. But, you know, I think a lot of those lessons were learned because of the original films and we only have this, these better versions, uh, you know, really in a large part, thanks to George Lucas's work. Um, well, you know, breaking uh, that ground. Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to comment on. One was just uh, quickly. You, I believe it was you that posted on Twitter the the one webpage that was "What if the prequels were good?" The video recaps <laughs> yeah, of the prequels yeah. being rewritten by a guy. That if if whoever's listening has not seen that, it's unbelievable. It'll make you just completely forget about what the prequels were actually about. It's a good like each video is around twenty twenty five minutes long, and it's that's sixty minutes of just like Star Wars hypothetical bliss. I loved it. Uh, the, um, 
Star Wars has happened. It's out there for all of us. I'm going to watch it again. I'm excited to see a Blu-ray release with some behind the scenes because I want to know how they did this. I really loved the, a lot of the visuals, the way they dealt with light, the way they dealt with the exposure in some moments. Uh, I mentioned elsewhere the forest scene. I really like how will how willing they were to go dark and monochrome. Um, I think it worked really well for me. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have yet to see it a second time, but I think I'll probably see it three times while it's in theaters and then probably a million times later. <laughs> Afterwards. Cool. So, right. uh, yeah, that was awesome. I'm, I'm glad that we could go through it. Uh, like you said, it's actually, um, it'll be preferable when we can have uh, this fresh in our memory or in an actual copy to review. So um, as soon as it's out to the digital world, uh, you know, and whenever it gets released, it'll be fun to break down again with screenshots or references because cinematically it's, uh, it's done really well. Yeah, full, I fully expect our opinions to shift over the years, but I'm, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, excited for, I'm, I'm excited for that to happen. All right, cool. thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you, and uh, may the force be with you.